Hello and welcome to this podcast series on excellence featuring the 2016 Missouri Honor Medalists. I'm Jim Flink, Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at the Missouri School of Journalism. The Missouri School of Journalism has awarded the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service since 1930. Medalists are selected by the faculty of the school on the basis of lifetime or superior achievement for distinguished service performed in such lines of journalistic endeavor as shall be selected each year for consideration. Past recipients include Tom Brokaw, Christiane Amanpour, Sir Winston Churchill, Gloria Steinem, Deborah Howell, David Granger, and Gordon Parks, among others. This year, we're focusing on the common denominator each recipient holds, that of excellence. We're joined this segment by co-president and chief creative officer of The Hollywood Reporter, Billboard Media Group, Janice Min. Janice Min grew up in Littleton, Colorado, earned a bachelor's degree in history and a master's in journalism at Columbia University in New York. After graduating, she worked at the Reporter Dispatch in New York covering crime and local events, then moved on to People, Life, and InStyle magazines. At InStyle, Min created the InStyle Weddings and InStyle Makeover publications. As editor-in-chief of Us Weekly from 2002 to 2009, she was influential in creating popular culture trends and an industry for celebrity gossip. Min also created a more celebrity-friendly editorial style and placed more emphasis on reality TV stars. Min was appointed to lead The Hollywood Reporter in 2010. She relaunched it as a glossy weekly magazine that emphasized in-depth news features and visuals. Min also reworked the website. The Hollywood Reporter's web traffic increased 800% under her tenure at the publication, and revenue increased 50%. Those efforts were followed by increased readership and Min's promotion to her current position in 2014. And Janice Min, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about excellence in this series, and it's admittedly uh, way too broad a topic. But let's talk a little bit about excellence and and how you define it, especially given the current landscape in media, which is ever-changing, it seems. I would say the way we define excellence in what we do is pretty simple. Does your content that you create in whatever form make a difference? Does, Does it have any impact? Does it reach anybody? And... Does it rise above the pack of all the noise uh, that is coming at you 24 hours a day uh, to be something somebody chooses to spend time with? And I don't think it's necessarily a standard that is specific to um, just people who are in journalism or media. It's really people who are in TV, in film, people who are trying to compete against the constant flood of information coming our way. It's such a challenge, isn't it, in this landscape? You know, you see the emergent platforms and channels and and sort of the, you know, the ebb and flow of popularity. Talking to my 15-year-old would not be the same clearly as talking to me in terms of social channels and that kind of thing. And it's it's really a challenge, isn't it? You know, my job is to edit and decide what things are are worthy and what things aren't worthy, both in what we churn out here, but also, you know, I find it increasingly hard to edit my own personal life. And we are in the so-called golden age of television. And there are times, my husband and I, when we were trying to figure out what to watch, we we, we sort of are like, wow, we have no idea. Like, (laughs) you kind of don't want to make the wrong choice because it's a time commitment. So I think, you know, and it is really that the most excellent things are the ones that will be in my mind because I've heard them talked about somewhere else. I've heard people mention them. I know they were well-reviewed. That is eventually what wins. At The Hollywood Reporter, it's, there's this thing that I feel like has been a big part of the success here from uh, when we relaunched in 2010, which is this notion that so we are not just doing stories. We're not just trying to do good stories, but 
we're also trying to get them across the finish line is what we always call it, which is, um, you know, your story used to be done when you turned it into an editor and it went to either a printing press or posted online. And now it is, okay, how do you make that story come alive and reach the widest group of people? So the, the strategic part of the job, which used to not be necessarily as um, significant a part of the job, is uh, is in the in the sort of amplification of stories you believe in. And on any given day or any given week here, there are probably certain stories or pieces of content we do that we consider to be our most important, our most image-enhancing, um, things that we think represent our sense of excellence here. And so um, that involves how do we get other media outlets to, to take interest in what we're doing, write what we're doing? How do we put this out in the world and social media? Are there television partners we need to be going out to to publicize what we're doing? And um, I think as anyone who works in media knows today, like if you have the sound of one hand clapping on your story, you're dead. You need to have the, you know, the whole afterlife after publication really make your piece something. And I think for us, we've had this you know, we started out with this challenge of we're on, we're in Los Angeles, not exactly the media capital of the world, and we're producing content from an industry that would be very easy to dismiss as trivial and lightweight. One of the things we have um, done, and quite well, I'd like to think, is make our content relevant to a larger audience and also expanding the boundaries of what Hollywood is. And uh, also using Hollywood as a way to get into the important political and social conversations of the day, knowing that Hollywood is often, uh, whether you agree with it or not, um, offering a position of thought leadership on those topics. And, you know, you can look at something like Oscar So White uh, with the Oscar nominations from earlier this year that had all white acting nominees um, for the first time in 20 years. And Oscar So White sort of put a very almost more digestible face on the issue of race that really overwhelmed the racial cultural conversation for months and months. You know, you would think that the the uh, the composition, the ethnic and racial diverse composition of the voting members of the academy, um, this, that it were like you know picking Supreme Court justices. <laughs> it, it took on it took on that level of social importance, and it's those kinds of stories that we take very seriously here. But we also take a lot of pride in knowing that these are stories that have a larger impact. You know, I have to tell you that here at the Missouri School of Journalism, which is America's oldest, I, I am constantly surprised by the number of aspiring journalists who want to cover the very things that you just talked about. We have an emergent um, throng, if you will, of people who are interested in entertainment, sports, but I think they're not just interested in in it in the fanboy or fangirl way, right? I think right. They, they very much look at the world through the prism of causality that is seen in uh, you know, whether it be motion pictures or whether it be on the on the field of play or whatever, and sort of the manifestation of life as sport, but also in telling those stories. Are you seeing that as well from your end? Like, do you yeah. are you are you, you flooded know, I mean, with applicants? We, we I wouldn't say flooded, um, you, you know, by virtue of being in Los Angeles, they're not journalists beating down the doors right. to move to Los Angeles. I do think there is that intellectualization of entertainment 
and sports is is huge. And, you know, the kinds of journalists who would never succeed here are the kinds of journalists who want to go on a red carpet and have a selfie taken with Jennifer Lawrence. Like that, that is not what we do. And that is not the kind of journalism that will succeed today. I think the, the people who can impart meaning on really the two biggest connect fields that connect America and the world, you know, it's entertainment and sports, people who can impart meaning in that, in those areas. Earlier this year, I received a Matrix Award, which is a an award for women in communications. And on the stage was also getting an award with Lena Dunham. And she was getting her award presented to her by Gloria Steinem. It really struck me, um, you know, the feminists of today are not intellectuals. They're not coming out of universities. They are coming out of Hollywood. Like if you think about people in the last year who have driven uh, so much important discussion on that topic, it's um, it's Lena Dunham, it's Jennifer Lawrence, it's Amy Schumer, people who have probably radically shifted the way that we look at women's roles in society, in movies, in television, in the way, in equal pay. And that's where you really see the, the significance of social media and being able to amplify the messages of people who the larger world are already very interested in. I could say the same thing about issues of race. Um, you know, Chris Rock wrote an unbelievably powerful uh, piece for us for one of our cover stories about being black in Hollywood. And I, I do think that that was a real turning point in the conversation of of awareness of of discrimination, of who gets what roles uh, in in this city right now. I find all this fascinating because, you know, my 15-year-old, my he consumes almost everything on Snapchat and really to the expense of almost everything else. And right. yet if I'm going to talk to him about some current event, some current issue, he can talk very knowledgeably based upon the content that he has consumed largely on Snapchat. I think that's fascinating. It provokes a lot of hope for me. I think that there's probably a misconception that if you have an important story, it has to be told in 3,000 words. Right. <laughs> I think that we're seeing that that is not necessarily, and certainly probably definitely not even the majority of times, the case. I think there are people who want to pull their hair out to think that somehow Snapchat with all the, you know, people with unicorns coming out of their mouth and all these <laughs> right. things, that, right. that somehow this is this is the new way that, you know, an ADD generation communicates. <laughs> you know, look at the current time we are in right now and the election. And I, I, I've never seen more young people incredibly engaged in the discussion. Listen, we've all had leisure pursuits in our life. You know, I think when I was growing up, I probably melted my brain every Saturday night watching Love Boat into Fantasy <laughs> Island. I mean, I watched hours and hours and hours of television. I think that those external stimulation that kids and younger people need are the same ones we had, which doesn't mean that you're turning an intellectually curious person stupid. I just think these are the new forms of entertainment. I, I've always been very heartened. If you look at the brands, that matter the most today. Nothing killed the legacy brand. I think there's probably not a person alive who thinks that if they don't want to make the biggest impact with their with a certain kind of story, that it shouldn't be in the New York Times right. or the Wall Street Journal um, or the Washington Post. So I don't think you have yet someone saying, you know, boy, I really need to get my message out through Mashable. You know, I, I mean, and that's not demeaning Mashable. No, just not saying at all. They do a different thing. But that the, the sort of essence of news gathering, content creation, and that kind of um, authority and credibility, they probably actually matter more today than we've ever thought they would. Because, it, again, it's sort of which brands rise above the pack. 
to mean something. And you know what? I don't want to read, I don't need to read the eighth derivation of a New York Times story. I'd rather just read the New York Times story. So, uh, so in some ways, it, it's actually incredibly clarifying. You can, it's almost a filter through which you run all this noise. And, you know, where am I going to spend my time? I'm going to spend my time with my highest quality friends and also, you know, my highest quality content available to me. And the transformation that's going on in those newsrooms, the New York Times, the Washington Post, mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal, it's, it's really phenomenal. And it kind of leads me to the next step, which is certainly um, you have you have been able to uh, create a lot of success and excellence in in your operation. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what does that look like now? And is it is it sort of tried and true? That is to say, well, it's historically the things that always have. Or is it that plus a twist? Well, uh, boy, I think it's probably a little of all of the above, but really it's sort of just changing the mindset of how we produce content. So, you know, we have this glorious, beautiful weekly magazine that is, you know, sort of the crack of Hollywood. People, you know, people read it for news, for fun, for the photographs. Um, It's, you know, very solid business publication on top of that. But with this whole shift has had to happen. Can we get the staff? How do I get the staff to come in every day and think about how do I win today? Like, Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? And what kind of stories can we be on? And it's sort of, if, if nothing else, it's kind of compressed the time frame um, that we put on the deadlines, the internal deadlines we put on ourselves to create premium content. So can we turn around a very fast interview today? That's good. Can we, can we get square in the middle of the conversation on a story with our way, in a way we feel good about with our angles? I think that's sort of the driving impetus of this place, which is how, how are we in the conversation? Like, you know, I have no desire for the Hollywood reporter to be, you know, nose pressed against the window, being an outsider in things people care about. And but we, we, you know, we'll often just go after interviews we know are going to matter that day. We will go after, for example, you know, this is an incredible broadening of probably what the Hollywood Reporter traditionally has done. We've sent people to the conventions, mm-hmm. um, the political conventions, knowing that Hollywood is incredibly invested in these elections, that we have a reality television candidate, Donald Trump. These conventions are going to greatly impact the success, the rise and fall of different media outlets and personalities out of New York, where we'll be covering the conventions, that we can't really any longer as an outlet look at those sort of events and say, we're not part of that because we cover movies and television out of Los Angeles. But looking at that and saying, okay, like we are the Hollywood Reporter, we have the authority to do this, and no one's going to look at this and say, what? They are at the conventions? And in fact, that has just not been the case because we've been able to sort of broaden our boundaries, you know, in a way that feels right for us and in a way that feels right for the audience. Well, and it's so important to know what to talk about. You talked about clutter earlier, and, and yeah. it's fascinating to me. We live in this 32-and-a-half-hour day now because of all our multitasking. Right. And nothing's more important than right now, the moment, and being part of the proper conversation, which is exactly what you're saying. Yes, that, the whole clutter part. You know, you see, you see the, the news, the tides of the waves of uh, interest go up and down on social media. And, you know, it's, it, again, like going back to the point, it probably is reducing everyone's attention spans, but it's also creating unbelievable swells of interest in important topics and important issues. So one of the things that I've seen just as, a, as an editor that has been incredibly gratifying is that there are certain stories and topics that can't just go die, like that you can't have, you can't be shooting unarmed black men and mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. that that doesn't, that that's not going to matter or those dots aren't going to be connected and that somehow, you know, a movement's not going to be born out of that. And, 
you know, there's lots of times, probably every single day, I think about, you know, historic events that have happened and what would happen if social media had been in existence at that time. Could Bill Clinton have survived Monica Lewinsky in the age of social media? You know, I think the course of so many events would have been altered uh, if there had been a larger voice for the people. As a sort of an addendum to that conversation, contextualization, the importance of journalistic organizations, media organizations to provide context. We understand we're not the gatekeepers, the agenda setters anymore. We understand we're not the first on with the information, right? Right. How important is it? And do you see that diminishing or growing, that is to say, the contextualization offered by organizations such as yours? Uh, The contextualization is very important. I think... For starters, it really gives the audience a sense of your knowledge and your authority. There's always this impulse in Internet culture to be go out, go out with it, up, 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 be first. And I think the really good organizations would rather be second or last and not put out a story that's wrong, that's stupid, that's that's a poor representation of who that outlet is. And uh, so context, I mean, I think that can mean that can mean so many things. One example that comes to mind is the show on Fox, Empire, that ended up becoming a huge broadcast hit for the Fox network. That story ended up becoming, through several edits, a much bigger, more important story about the neglect of the black television audience in broadcast television and also in the in the gamble and, and in the risk about you know, facing all broadcast networks as they reach, you know, fewer and fewer people because, you know, only people like me on the young end (laughs) are still watching broadcast television at an appointed hour. And so, you know, I think as a, you know, a story that could have easily been about, well, look at this crazy new show about this crazy music family with that stars black actors became a story about much something about something much more significant about what's going on, both in, in business trends and in societal trends. Of course, there was also put in there the notion about this horrible thing that is traditionally had happened in television where shows with African-American audiences would get lower ad rates no matter if they had the same audience or not. It was considered a less valuable audience. And I mean, you know, if that doesn't make you think of, you know, three-fifths a person, um, mm-hmm. then I don't know what will. And, uh, and you know, Empire has been a great example of how showing how ridiculous that is. And guess what? A dollar from an African-American person is the same dollar as from a white person. And, you know, it's taken businesses a long time to see that, but it's it's definitely, you know, Empire was a big game changer in that. And so that's the kind of story narrative we like to get into. And also, can we use to show, you know, this is why this stuff matters. It doesn't matter if you like the show or not. And trust me, we cover plenty of that too. But when we can when we can make something more important through context, that's always a better story. And it sounds to me like you're very optimistic about the landscape, the ecosystem, and and the emergent themes that are that are going on. I, I am you know I am incredibly optimistic about what happens with great brands. I don't think you've seen in the history of time a time when quality lost to frivolity. There there are all sorts of things that aren't within editor's control necessarily. You know who your publisher is. You know business forces working against you. What if we have another 2008 downturn? I think those are things that editors can't really think about or obsess over too much because it's largely out of our control. One of the biggest challenges is just the amount of cost to keep up with the 24-7 news culture. If you are now expected to produce podcasts and videos and Facebook Live and Snapchat, these things aren't cheap. And, you know, to this day, they're not paying the same amount of money as a 
single glossy ad page does in a print publication. So every media outlet is going through that struggle of, okay, so how does this all net out in the end? But you also can't not be in it. There is a tension that persists in that regard. And we'll remain hopeful that things that Snapchat are doing in monetization and elsewhere, those are going to be the solutions. We've been talking with co-president and chief executive, chief creative officer of The Hollywood Reporter and Billboard Media Group, Janice Men. This is part of a podcast series on excellence featuring the 2016 Missouri Honor Medalist. I'm Jim Flink, assistant professor of strategic communication at the Missouri School of Journalism. Thanks for joining us.